Well, good morning. Let's try it again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Everybody doing okay? Anybody notice the black top? That's exciting, huh? Yeah, another inch and a half goes on tomorrow morning, and I'm hopeful that we'll get striped by the end of next week so we'll all know where to park uh, next Sunday. It was funny, last, well, yesterday morning, we left for uh, City on a Hill, an inner city Milwaukee missions trip, and uh, we were left to our own devices for where to park, and it kind of looked like a concave lens, you know, the way our cars were laid out, so... Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to tell you where to go exactly soon. I um, want to welcome you back to the mill. If you're uh, visiting with us and this is your first time here, we'd love for you to fill out a welcome card. Or if you've never filled out a welcome card, we'd appreciate you filling out a welcome card so we know a little bit more about you and your family. You can do that at themill.church slash welcome, themill.church slash welcome. You can also fill out a, a hard copy version at the tabletop in the back if you don't want to do that on your smartphone or if you don't have a smartphone up to you. So um, I am old enough to remember, this sounds silly for a 40-year-old to say, doesn't it? I'm old enough to remember, but I am old enough to remember gospel tracks. Anybody remember gospel tracks? T-R-A-C-T-S, not K-S. Tracks. What were gospel tracks? Well, I remember taking these, being told to take these, and taking these to the county fair uh, when I was a kid. Um, this is how it was believed at the time that we were to share the gospel. Uh, tracks were these little uh, short narrations, uh, think comic book. They were often trifold, you know, uh, they explained the basic points of the gospel. Um, they were perhaps different than common comic books in that they weren't really funny. <laughs> um, they were actually quite serious and quite scary and quite daunting, and they were very no-nonsense. Sometimes they could even get into the gimmicky. Uh, you may remember seeing one that looked like a fake $10 bill, a fake $10 bill, and on it were the words disappointed, like when somebody picks it up and realizes it's not a real $10 bill. Disappointed, here's a real tip. <laughs> Trust in Jesus today, right? And then you would read about uh, the gospel. Well, some of them were really in your face. Some of them demonized Christian rock music, which in the latter years of the holiness movement, you know, there was kind of a clash between secularism and what the church thought we were to be. And, and uh, some of them um, belittled those that read any other versions besides the King James version of the Christian, uh, of, the, of the Holy Bible. Um, but we were taught as kids, hey, this is how you witness. You take these tracks around and you leave them places. And you give them to your waiter or to your waitress and... Uh, you, you leave them in the seats next to you when you leave the movie theater and you place them, God forbid, we actually did this, in public restrooms. Like, who's going to pick that up, right? But we thought people would. This was how we were supposed So we'd leave these in inconspicuous places where people would hopefully find them and, and read them. And do you remember, like, we, we would even leave them, like, in blockbuster 
cases. Do you remember, does anybody remember Blockbuster or is that like way too old for uh, millennials in the room, I'm sure. So block, do you remember the satisfaction of hearing the Blockbuster case close when the lady would pull out your VHS tape and rewind it for you and then she would close that and take it around the security gate and hand it to you as you exited the building. Well, we would put those tracks into those cases when we would return our movies, hoping that maybe a a worker at Blockbuster, an employee, would read the track and and convert to Jesus. And uh, some people would ask toll booth attendants or fast food line employees, hey, would you pass this to the person behind me? So we would engage others in our little plots to share uh, the gospel. And, and, and on occasion, you would even see one, believe it or not, on a condom rack. <laughs> in a, you know, we just found these weird places to put these tracks. And, and uh, I wish I was joking, but that's the truth. We left these things everywhere. And there were a number of things that we were supposed to say to people if they ever engaged us regarding the tracks that we left. And these things were were conveniently printed for the person who was supposed to engage the non-believer within the track itself. So hopefully, hopefully we could help them pray the exact words, right, for the prayer of salvation. And we were supposed to place an emphasis on Bible reading and, and prayer and church attendance, all good things, of course. And then you were supposed to say something to them uh, like this, now that you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are saved. You are saved. And that word even at times feels, I don't know, like a little cheesy, you know, like a, I just picture I grew up in the South, you know, big preachers standing in the pulpits, get saved, you know, but there's not really any other word that quite works, you know, like get renewed, like that's not motivating, you know, Um, get inspired, get changed, you know, so we would say to them, you are now saved and you'll go to heaven to be with Jesus and he promises never to leave you or forsake you and no one can pluck you. Do you remember this language? No one can pluck you from the Father's hand. Welcome to the family of God, right? And several years ago, a Barna study Uh, concluded that about 50% of Americans have prayed a prayer just like that one. About 50% of Americans. Now, how many of you would say that you think 50% of Americans are devout followers of Jesus? Okay, probably not the case, right? There are fewer disciples than they are uh, those that espouse or claim uh, Christianity So um, they would subsequently believe, you know, after praying a prayer like that, hey, I'm going to heaven, and and why do you believe that, you'd ask? And well, because that's what they were told by the person that gave them the track or other method that we've used to evangelize in the past. And half of them have, half of that 50% have no presence in in the weekly meeting of the church, about the same number think that the Bible is wrong in what the Bible teaches. About two-thirds have lifestyles and worldviews that completely contradict 
the teachings of Jesus and look in no distinguishable way uh, different than what the outside world, uh, how they live and the, and the things that they do. And of course, for the rest of their lives, the people who have prayed those prayers, 50% of Americans say, I've prayed that prayer, they're going to perhaps hear other messages of Jesus and about needing to be saved from their sins. And what are they going to think to themselves when they hear that message about Jesus that they need to be saved from their sins? They're going to think, oh, I've been there. I've done that. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two, right? I've already prayed this. I got the tract. I said the prayer of salvation. I am saved, they'll say. And I've been to that class. Uh, I, was, I was baptized when I was a baby already. Um, I was baptized as an adult. Uh, I've, I've been confirmed. Thank you very much. Uh, my my gr- my grandma attended this church. My my dad attended here too. Um, so, what I want you to know today, church, is is that the Bible speaks frequently about a kind of faith that's actually superficial, one that does not go very deep. In fact, um, there is a kind of faith that doesn't save at all. There is, a, there is a lot of discussion. The only way you would know this is if you've been living under a rock right now about immunization. Would everybody agree with me? There's a lot of discussion about immunization. In case, uh, well, I'll just put it this way. The tragedy is, is that for a lot of people, super, you know, meaningful, or I should say superficial faith has, has immunized them, if you will, from a sincere faith in Christ. Uh, what do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean, you know, we know how immunization is said to work. Historically, they give you a little bit of the disease, usually a dead, usually a dead version of the disease. Your body develops these antibodies. That way, if you're ever exposed to the real thing, right, you have resistance to it. So just to flip the script for the purposes of this illustration, infection in the gospel, if we're spreading the gospel, is a good thing, right? We want to be infected with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of people, this is what I'm getting at, that are not exposed to the real Jesus because they have received the vaccine of superficial religion. We start a new series today in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four biographies of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, What we're going to see is that a key theme in the biographies, or rather the biography of John, and to distinguish it from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we're talking about the John that comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, right before Acts, not the ones at the end of the New Testament. So if you have your Bible this morning, open to the book of John. It's right 
the beginning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John of the New Testament, about two-thirds through your Bible. Go ahead and turn there. Um, we see that John is, and, and we, this is only going to take us about seven to eight weeks because I'm not going to go word for word through this series, um, or rather through this book. We did Luke, and it took us three years. It was awesome. It was thorough. It was exhaustive. It felt really complete <laughs> by the time we were finished. All I want to do is pick out a few characters in the book of Luke that struggled with disbelief in Jesus. And I'm hopeful that over the course of this series, I think every pastor, rest, every pastor wrestles in his or her head with, um, do my people really believe in Jesus? Are they really following Jesus? Or is this lip service? Is this religion? Is this a, a rote exercise? Is this something that we do, not something, not someone that we are, right? And so we're going to look at these seven stories from the Gospel of John. People that simply could not believe. They could not believe in Jesus. And some of these people had blind spots. And others of these people really wanted to believe. But for, for whatever reason, they, they felt like they couldn't. And believing is a major theme in the Gospel of John. John uses the word, word 99 times the word believe uh, through the biography, his biography of Jesus' life. John actually says toward the end of the book, uh, chapter 20, verse 31, but these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So he's stating inside of his biography the whole purpose of the biography. The purpose of his recollection of Jesus' life and ministry is that so people who read it might believe in who Jesus Christ is. And that by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. So that's what this, is, this book is about. So if you feel like you can't believe in Jesus, that, that some of us, I think, who are here, undoubtedly, or you know somebody who has trouble believing in Jesus, I'd say that takes care of the rest of us all of us know somebody who really struggles with believing in Jesus, then I hope this series is for you. I hope this strikes a chord. Um, our hope and prayer is that for those of you who feel like you can't believe in Jesus, that you'll believe in Jesus by the end of this series, and, and that for those of you who are lacking confidence in sharing with your friend, that you'll know how to evangelize to them, and that it will not include a tract, Okay? that it'll include relationship, friendship, loving them, having a meal with them, just like Jesus did it, right? That's how Jesus did it, over dinner. So, John 1, verse 14. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to talk at the end of today's message about seeing or beholding holding Jesus, seeing him, um, that if you already believe, you will be even renewed in the way that you behold Jesus Christ. Um, how many of you know that if you look at something long enough that's beautiful, it loses its beauty in your perception, right? I've told this story before, um, one of the the, the things that just hit the nail 
on the head for me when I was in college was a uh, kind of random group of college kids that got together for worship, and we had a little speaker that shared a devotional, and he told a story about his wife who was in the hospital having their third or fourth child, and he's got a couple of the older kids, and they're in the flower shop looking for roses for mom. And he takes a big bouquet of roses, and at the counter, right before he's about to check out and pay for them, he bends down and leans the bouquet uh, you know, into his older child's face and says, smell these roses, honey, aren't they wonderful? And to his surprise, the lady behind the counter, kind of snarky, uh, she pipes up and says, what are you talking about? I can't smell anything. And he says, I'm, I'm sorry, ma'am, is, is everything okay? Are you, are you sick? Are you congested? What, what do you mean you can't, you can't smell anything? This is, this is a flower shop. And she says, I've, I've been working here 30 years. I just can't smell the flowers anymore. I think there's a lot of people who have been going, going to church for decades. And, and it's hard for us to smell the flowers. It's hard for us to behold Jesus. We know what we're supposed to do when we come together. We lift our voices. We, we lift our hands. We, we say hi to the right people. We, we get the, the, the name tag on the back of our kid, and we put the other one in our pocket, and we pay attention to the screen in case something's wrong, and we go about our lives not having looked upon Jesus, not having beheld the beauty of Jesus. It just becomes like pedals on a bike, these motions that we go through. And so my prayer through this series is that we together will behold, will look upon the beauty of Jesus again. And that we'll truly savor him. You know, like a sweet morsel of chocolate. That we'll savor Jesus Christ. That he'll be meaningful to us. So that's what uh, this book is about. So now I'm going to get into the first kind of character that we see in this story. And we're actually going to start, I've read a few words from chapter 1, but in chapter 2. And this is the kind of person that I want you, I've already kind of given you some hints. This is a person that I want to talk about this morning. The religiously immunized. The religiously immunized individual. This is the person who's worked in the flower shop way too long. Okay? Verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was in, now when, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So they saw these miracles. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about all people, about human beings, about man, for he knew himself what was in man. What was in the human heart? So here you have a group of people who believe in Jesus, believe we will, we will put in quotes, but he has not, as the scriptures say, entrusted himself 
to them. Why? Why hasn't Jesus given himself to them? Because Jesus knew that their faith was superficial. That is why. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe them. He didn't believe in their belief. He knew what was on the inside of them. He could rightly see that their interest in Jesus, in himself, was a fleeting interest. He could rightly see that they were in it for the wrong reasons. He could rightly see that in this case in particular, their belief was a convenient belief. That maybe it made them look cooler to their friends. Um, he could, in this particular case, you know, they had seen the signs. They were temporarily impressed with Jesus. They're begging him to do more signs. They're curious as to what else Jesus might do for them. And, and, and the question strikes me, what might this kind of belief look like in our day? This superficial belief that Jesus is speaking to um, in our day, it might be people who believe because of their background. It might be people who, who go to church because this is how I was raised. Because we have children. This is something I think young couples in particular really struggle with. Because we have children now and we want to set a good example. I'm telling you, setting a good example is a terrible motivation for going to church yourself. Because all that matters is checking the box of walking in and dropping the kids off. You're not here to meet with God. You're here to make sure they get some kind of training that really ought to be done where to begin with. At home. Yeah, I mean, we'll help your kids as best we can. Don't get me wrong. But it's the responsibility of the parent to raise a child up in, in the ways of God. And so to the college student, it might look like this. I guess I'm more of a Christian than I am a Jew or a Muslim. Therefore, I'm a Christian. These believers in chapter 2, they believed in Jesus. They did not belong to Jesus. And John 2 is not the only place that this occurs in the scriptures. In Matthew 7, you have people who prayed prayers and they went on mission trips even. We went on a mission trip yesterday to inner city Milwaukee, city on a hill, took 27. It was a great day. But these folks that went on mission trips didn't belong to Jesus. In Luke 8, in the parable of the seeds, you have those who get really excited about their faith really excited about their faith, and they fizzle out. They're like a quick, cheap firecracker, firework. They, they fizzle out, and, and even some of them, you know, they bring others to church, and they start reading the Bible, and, and they get plugged into a life group. Please understand, Jesus is not talking about, in the scripture that we read that was on the screen behind me, pagan, irreligious people. He's not. He's not talking about atheists. He's, he's not even talking about agnostics, people who aren't sure. He's talking about deeply devout religious people who are deluded into thinking that they are saved from their sins and, and their selves when they are in fact not saved. He's talking about men and women who will be shocked one day to find out that although they thought they were on the narrow road that leads to salvation to heaven, they were not, in fact, born 
again. And you may say this morning, that's not me, Pastor. You may be screaming that in your heart. And I, I hope you're right. I hope that's not you. Um, but again, 50% of Americans have said, I've prayed the prayer. I've prayed the prayer, asking Jesus into my heart, even though half of them have no regular presence in any kind of church, and two-thirds of them have lifestyles and worldviews that in no way differ from those outside the faith. And people hear statistics like the ones I gave above. 50% have a personal relationship with Jesus. Less than half live differently. And they say, see, this is what the world says, see Christians, this is what some church people say, see Christians are hypocrites. Is that there can't be possibly that many, you know, true Christians. And I, and I would say, rather it's that, it's not that Christians are hypocrites, it's that Christians aren't Christians it's not that they're hypocritical, it's that they're not saved. The question presented to us in John 2 is then, what kind of belief in Jesus really saves? Really saves? I mean, that has eternal ramifications. Wouldn't you say that's kind of an important question? If there's various kinds of belief, and, and if I may have a superficial belief, then what kind of belief really saves from sin? Well, I think that's an important question. Um, do you have the kind of faith that is superficial or the kind of faith that saves? Because we're in a culture where millions are being called Christians. And they're comfortable with that language. They say, yep, that's me. When they are not, in fact, disciples of Jesus Christ. I'll put it more simply yet. There are so many people who claim Jesus who Jesus does not claim. That's exactly what we just read about. There are so many people who claim Jesus who Jesus does not claim. Is it possible that's you? So naturally, if it is possible that's you, we need to describe what saving faith looks like. And remember, there's no chapter break in these books. The chapters were added later. So Chapter 3 is going to flow right out of chapter 2. It's kind of the logical answer to the problem presented in chapter 2. And chapter 3 begins this way. John chapter 3. You say, wow, we're already on chapter 3. Isn't that something? Moving quick. Here we go. This is an important story. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. So, so obviously he has some kind of belief, right? He said, surely you come from God. So in his mind, he thinks that's the kind of belief that saves. And Jesus corrects his thinking. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus answered, Jesus said, no man, this is an entirely different kind of being born again. You're, you're thinking too physical. You need to think more spiritual. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that would be the natural birth, what happens? A woman's what breaks? A woman's water breaks. That's being born of water. Jesus says, not only do you need to be born of water, that happens once in life. 
you also need to be born of the Spirit. And unless somebody is born of the Spirit, he cannot He cannot be accepted into the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with being baptized. It has nothing to do with church attendance. It has nothing to do with life group attendance. It has nothing to do with mission trips and acts of service. It has nothing to do with any goodwill gesture that we could possibly muster, Jesus is saying. You have to be born again to enter the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. Church, genuine, saving grace stands on one principle. Being born again. Being born again. We've said it so so many times that it loses its meaning. You got to be born again. Nobody even knows what that means anymore, right? This is the context of being born again. You've been born once in the flesh. You've got to be born in the spirit. You've got to have a birth time, a birthplace. You've got to accept and believe in Jesus. And if there are people who claim that Jesus, uh, who claim Jesus, that Jesus does not claim, then what kind of faith saves? This is the kind of faith Jesus uh, says saves. Nicodemus was a religious man. And, and despite all of his good works, despite all of his learnedness, he was bright, he was educated, he knew the right answers to the questions. Despite all of his rituals, Jesus was saying, you are still dead in your sin. You're dead in your sin, Nicodemus. See, before the gospel becomes good news, the gospel is bad news. It's bad news first. And so often we skip over the bad news because we want to get to the good news because the good news makes us feel really good. And this is where most people miss it because unless you grapple with in your mind and heart the bad news, the acknowledgement that you are steeped in sin, that sin has cut you off from God, you are spiritually dead and you cannot turn around and face and look to and fix your eyes on Jesus because without a life stained by sin, if this isn't your observance, you don't have a need for Jesus. You may have a need to look pretty with your family on Sunday mornings. You may have a need to have some kind of faith-centered social interaction. You can have all kinds of needs, but you don't need Jesus if you're unaware that you're a sinner. This, this is what Jesus is communicating. And this is, this is where Jesus begins his gospel presentation. It's not the good news yet. It's the bad news. Jesus starts with bad news. And we need to start with bad news. In some sense, the tracks did this very well. They started with the bad news. They made everybody feel horrible about themselves. The same problem Adam and Eve faced in the garden is the problem that we face today. Sin is an I problem. You've heard there's no I in team. There is in sin. There is. Sin is a me issue. I want to be in charge. I want to decide and serve for for myself and to serve myself. I want the glory. And this is a path 
that we have all voluntarily continued down, and there isn't a question on whether or not you're bent this way. We are all born and consciously and sometimes unconsciously resist God. We're in a state of rebellion as human beings. Did you notice that Jesus spoke collectively to the human race? That's because we're all stained by this stuff. We have to fight it. Um, I want to be in charge all my life. I want the glory and attention. This is about my interest, my agenda. I even did that this last week. We took a little mini vacay, our family. Uh, someone gifted us with a couple uh, nights stay, and we went down to the Dells, and, and I, I just said, enough of this kid's stuff. I want Cracker Barrel. That's what I want. I want a meal. I want some carbs. I want comfort food. I want something warm in my belly. I want Cracker Barrel. Now. Right? I didn't say it like that, but I, I made my wishes known. And, and all of us make our wishes known. And we put our wishes before others. And God said, you're under... If you sin, if you sin, it'll ultimately lead to death. And what do we see around us? We see death. We see disease. We see injustice. We see dysfunction. We can feel it, can we not? Inside of ourselves and our neighbors and our Facebook friends. Am I the only one that feels the resentment? That feels the anger. That feels the angst. In the human hearts of those we know. Is there a lot of good in the world? Of course there is. Of course there is. I saw a lot of that yesterday. There's no doubt that we are under condemnation. Aside from intervention from Jesus Christ. There is no doubt. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We need you. The Bible is replete with the idea that we are fallen. Dr. Phil will not tell you this. Your therapist will likely not tell you this. There are some preachers who don't make it a habit of telling people this. We are stained. Just quickly, John 3.36 Wrath of God abides on, our, on the human race. John 3.20, we are, quote, lovers of darkness. Paul says in Romans, our minds are blinded in chapter 1. We are disordered in our emotions, chapter 1. We are defiled in our bodies, chapter 1. Paul in Ephesians calls us children of wrath, meaning that the cup of wrath is going to be poured out on us, that our inheritance is wrath, is the wrath of the Father, Paul says in Romans, the law of death is at work in your faculties in chapter 7. Genesis 6 says that all of our thoughts are only evil continuously. Continuously. Not many of us want to admit that. This is bad news. This is not good news. Sin didn't knock us down to junior varsity. That wasn't its limitation, right? Sin didn't put us on probation for a time period. Sin didn't, didn't put us on a slower track to heaven 
where the music's just not quite as nice. Sin wiped us out. Sin has destroyed humanity, is destroying humanity, and we have absolutely no hope standing before God. Someone compared a Christian before God to a wilted dandelion before a nuclear bomb. We are hopeless outside of Jesus. We need help. We are stained. And this is where Jesus starts his gospel presentation. And I would argue this is where we need to start our gospel presentations. Francis Schaeffer, one of the country's greatest apologists, was, was once asked, what would you do if you met a modern man on a train and had just one, he's 20th century, so this would have been 50 years ago, you know, or, or more. If you met a modern man on a train and just had one hour to talk to him about the gospel, what would you do? And Francis Schaeffer replied, I'd spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he's morally dead. And then I would take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the good news. I think so much of our evangelistic work today is not clear simply because we're too excited and anxious to get to the answer without communicating the problem. The problem is us. It's our problem. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. Unless someone's born of water and spirit, he will never enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus references uh, to, to flesh and water are most likely, uh, scholars tell us, a, a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I'll cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What does this mean? Church family, this means we need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. We need a, we need a new heart that desires God, that desires Jesus. God's just not after our obedience. That's religion. Obeying God is religion. Um, he's after a heart that desires obedience. That's salvation. When we want to obey God, right? When we want to live in a way that pleases Him. John 3, 14 and 15. Jesus then uh, takes us back to the days of Moses and, and says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man, so must Jesus, so must I be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is making the point. We are no different than the people of Israel after being delivered from the hands of Pharaoh who grumbled in the wilderness. We are no different than the Israelites. They started getting hot. Anybody else get cranky when you get hot? I get cranky. When I get hot, ask my wife. If I wear the wrong shirt to, the, to, to a store and I have a sweater on when I should have a t-shirt on, I don't want to stay in that store. 
I want to go. I get hot. I get cranky. Jesus is saying we're no different than these people. We doubt God. We disbelieve in God. We grow dissatisfied in the ways of God. Our hearts wonder, God, I'm not satisfied with you alone. I need this romance. God, I'm not satisfied with you alone. I need money. God, I'm not satisfied with you alone. I need politics. What does God do to the grumbling people in the wilderness? Do you remember? remember? Here's what Jesus is talking about when he says the serpent. Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness. Do you know what he did? He sent thousands of death vipers into the camp of the Israelites. Thousands of literal snakes. And they crawled in their tents and they bit them. And the Bible says many of them died. You can read about it in Numbers 21. What does that mean to us? It's a picture. It was very literal. But to us, it's a picture of our sinfulness, of our broken lives. We are writhing. We are writhing in pain. We have received the venom of the enemy. We're crying out to God. And you know what God did in the Old Testament in Numbers 21? He tells Moses, hey, make a bronze image. This is a little bit of a weird, creepy remedy, but this is what God told Moses to do. Make a bronze image of one of the serpents and put it on the top of the pole, on top of the hill. And he tells people, if they can just get their eyes on that, if they can just look at it, if they can just crawl out of their tent, even though they're deathly sick, and fix their eyes on what is affixed to the top of that pole, then they will be healed from the venom. This actually happened. Imagine people writhing in pain, trying to get to a place at the camp that is within eyesight of this pole. They're in desperation to get a view of this serpent. And Jesus says, and Jesus says in John chapter 3 that we're reading, this is our new book of study, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus was saying that He, like the image of the serpent, would be lifted up on a pole for our sins, for our pain, for our death, and that whoever could fix his or her eyes on Jesus would be spared of death, would live. Is that a weird analogy? I think so. Elsewhere, Jesus is foreshadowed as a lamb. Isn't that nice? So pleasant to think about. <laughs> we love that. Not so much this image of the serpent. What's all about the image of a serpent? I don't even like, anybody else not like snakes? I hate snakes. I like to call them nope ropes. I want nothing to do with a nope rope. I turn around. I don't care how many stripes it has, lack of stripes, what color it is. It's a nope rope. Why a picture of snakes? Because the viper of death bit Jesus. Do you remember what we read in Genesis? This is depicted in the Passion of the Christ, if you've seen the Mel Gibson directed movie. We read in Genesis 
that one of the outworkings of the curse against the offspring of Adam and Eve would, that it would be that a serpent would strike his heel and that he would crush the serpent's head, right? But the serpent would bite, would strike his heel. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul teaches, he who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, what? Became sin, meaning the enemy of God, the serpent, struck Jesus Christ. He endured much pain. That's why he was put on the pole. And then we read this next in John 3. We often overlook the, the metaphor of the serpent, which is the context of the most famous passage in all of the Bible. I'm going to read it to you next. But think of it a little differently now that we've just read this metaphor of, the, of Jesus being hoisted up like the serpent so that we could fix our eyes upon him and be healed and receive our salvation. Here's what we read. For God, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, oh, you're reading it behind me. Why don't I read it with you? Same translation. Let's try it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want to conclude, I've got a few minutes, with this beautiful story written by Charles Spurgeon. It wasn't written by, it was, a, it was an actual account. He's telling history. This was the moment. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in all of history. So many great preachers. So many great preachers today get their stuff from Spurgeon. He was that good. He preaches thousands of times. Okay, this is what Charles Spurgeon said. I never knew this until I read this recently. This was his conversion experience. This is so cool. Okay, Charles Spurgeon. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now. Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. So understand what he's doing. He's going to one church, and the snowstorm interrupts his travel, and he's diverted, and he comes to a different church. He was going to religion. See, he was going to religion, and he ended up at salvation. Listen to him tell the story. When I could go no, no further, I came down a side street. I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen to 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. That didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it's well that preachers should be 
instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, I, said he, in a broad Essex accent, think that southern twang people from Pittsburgh have. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no, no use looking there, the preacher continued. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves, the layman preacher continued. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's work and you have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. He continued, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. And when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, the layman preacher was at the end of his tether. He could think of nothing else to say. And then he looked under the gallery at me, Charles Spurgeon. And I dare say with so few present, he must have known I was a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And in lifting up his hands... The layman preacher shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said, 
I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and they were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do filthy things. But when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The the darkness had rolled away. At that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Church family, it's looking to Jesus that saves us. You have to behold him. You have to adore him. No amount of being a third party to someone else's adoration of Jesus will save you. You have to look to him yourself. You have to love him yourself. You have to meet him yourself. You have to experience him yourself. Let's pray. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the cross. You became sin. The serpent struck you on the heel. Lord, all we have to do is trust that that was for us. To thank you. To have gratitude. To believe. No observance. No ritual. No checking of boxes. No task. No tradition. Will save. No amount. Of. Religion. Immunizes. Lord, we need you. 
the real Savior to say that you know us. And you said that you'll know us when we become born again. When we admit that we're sinful and wrong and receive your grace, your peace, your hope, your joy. That's the good news. Is there anybody here with all eyes closed who would say, I just would like to become a Christian today? I'd like to look upon Jesus. I'd like to trust him for salvation for me. I don't want to be a third-party observer anymore. I don't want to watch other people do it. I don't want to have a single other motivation than to trust in the Creator to save me from my sin and myself. Would you just look up and lock eyes with me so I know that's you today? Awesome. Anybody else? I want to trust in Jesus today for salvation. Awesome. 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 Praise the Lord. Praise your name, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else? Give just another minute. Anybody else? Awesome. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. But everybody who knows and loves the Lord and who has looked up at me this morning, roughly a half dozen, would you uh, say this prayer with me, Heavenly Father? I want to be born again. I need to be born again. I look to you for salvation. I need help. I need a Savior. I need to be healed. And so I look to the cross. I believe you died on that pole for the forgiveness of my sin. I believe you rose again. And you're preparing a home for me. I trust you. I adore you. I'm no longer a third-party observer. I'm yours. You're my father. I'm your child. I love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. So the Bible says that angels in heaven rejoice more when a lost sheep is found than when 99 are never in need of finding. Right? So let's celebrate with the angels in heaven who are rejoicing this morning. It will happen.